So it always changes. Last night I asked if there were any questions and in fact there were very few. You know, today, even before we started, we had a good discussion about Kuan Yin and the history of Buddhism and the nature of the Mahayana path and many other awesome and beautiful things that weren't even on the radar for me when I left the house this morning, but always good to visit. And, um, you know, so now I have this kind of... um, Dharma talk that I actually prepared, but you know, I'm very happy to field questions and see where um, this unfolds. So I'll start with a poem. So this poem is in some way describing that, that, that space that poetry opens up for us that then opens up for us in place before thinking. Sort of, um, and the paradox that we have this goal to get enlightenment, but we have to proceed without any agenda, without uh, wanting anything. You know, if you want enlightenment, that's also a big mistake. So, This is from Jane Hirschfeld, who's uh, been a lifetime student and uh, I think also a teacher in the lineage of Suzuki Roshi. It's called Inspiration. Think of those Chinese monks' tales. Years of struggling in the zendo. Then the clink while sweeping up of stone upon stone. It's Emily's wisdom. Truth in circuit lies. That's Emily Dickinson. Or see Grant's common birds and how to know them. The approach must be by detour, advantage taken of rock, tree, mound, and brush. But if without success this way, use artifice. Throw off all stealth's appearance, watchfulness. Look guileless, a loiterer, purposeless, Stroll on, not too directly towards the bird, avoiding any gaze too steadfast, or failing still in this, give rise to sundry whistles. Chirp, your quarry may stay on to answer. More briefly, try, but stymite, give it up. Do something else. Leave the untrappable thought. Go walking. Ideas buzz the air like flies. Return to work. A fox trots by. Not use sharp, stinking thought fox, but quite real, outside the window. With cream-dipped tail and red-fire legs doused watery brown, emerges from the wood's dark margin stopping all thinking, and briefly squats, not fox, but vixen, then moves along and out of sight. Enlightenment, wrote one master, is an accident, though certain efforts make you accident-prone. The rest slants fox-like, 
in and out of stones. So. Wow. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. And so that, you know, as we sit, you know, we are putting in effort, right? We're, we're taming the mind. We're bringing it back. You know, and that art of redirecting the wandering attention is fundamental. You know, like, like being able to sit. You know, sort of like the, the, someone compared it to the instructions that are given to a dog, right? Sit, stay, let it go. And um, as we enter this practice, you know, there are moments where it seems to flow. <laughs> And there are moments where it feels like we're persisting without that much success. Sometimes um, we are um, maybe trying too hard or, um, you know, blocking ourselves. You know, it, it's um, from the beginning, uh, you, the Buddha saw it rather like tuning the strings of an instrument. If you tune the strings too tight, the strings will snap. If you tune too loosely, then also there's no music possible. You know, so how do you find that place of, of attunement? So in many of these stories, um, for instance, a monk will be practicing in the zendo and um, you know, make effort and nothing happens. Then outside sweeping, you know, a stone falls and um, you know, strikes the, the broom and the monk's mind opens. Or in another story, you know, this monk has been traveling a long time and practicing and, you know, finally um, gives up, right, lies down for the night. His head um, slips off of the stone pillow and as it does that, you know, that's the awakening. It does seem rather by accident. You know, there's a traditional story about Su Tung Po, you know, who had a, this great direction to wake up. So he traveled far across China. And when he got to the monastery, uh, the teacher said to him, why do you come here seeking the dead words of men? Why do you not seek the live words of nature? So Su Tung Po left and got back on his horse, kind of stunned, he let the horse find the way home as he's kind of trying to uh, grok it. And as the horse is traveling, they encounter a waterfall, right? At the sight and the sound of the waterfall, Su Tung's Po's mind opens. He's, he composes a poem right there. <clears throat> the Buddha's, um, you know, the sight of the waterfall is the Buddha's luminous body. The sound of the waterfall, this is the Buddha's voice. How many poems have flow through me tonight, and tomorrow I won't remember even one word. You know, so when we really step out of our own way, then um, enlightenment is right there. You know, only how clearly, how spontaneously can we meet the moment. So uh, ages later, in Korea, the story was being told and um, of Su Tung Po, and Mr. Lee asked his teacher, 
But what if Su Tung Po didn't encounter the waterfall? What would have happened? So at that time, his teacher said, Mr. Lee. Mr. Lee said, yes. He responded, enter here. You know, so um, someone calls and you respond, that's it. You know, can you, as, as you do that, you know, that touches into something that's before thinking. So it doesn't have to be the waterfall. You know, as Mary Oliver said, it doesn't have to be the blue iris. It could be a weed in a vacant lot or even a few small stones. Just pay attention. Right, that's the opening. So someone asked Zen Master Joju, where does a practitioner of the way receive grace? And he said, where doesn't a practitioner of the way receive grace? Right, so Su Tung Po had that moment with the waterfall. You know, Mary Oliver wrote the great poem, The Summer Day, you know, perceiving a grasshopper. You know, she said, who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Right, who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean, the one who has flung herself out of the grass, who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws left and right instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she lifts her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to stroll through the fields, how to be idle and blessed, which is what I've been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it that you plan to do with your own wild and precious life? So, you know, Mary Oliver encountered that opening through the grasshopper. You know, where in our life are we ready to open up? You know, there's that, that, there's that invitation. It's everywhere. I hope you're recording this. Well, thank you. Yes. <laughs> All right. So just opening up to questions, comments. Everyone with us. Oh, so I've got one. I think Tim's brutal. Yeah, Something's percolating, man. Just say it. There's a, there's a oodles of There's so many I can't, like, <laughs> I try to pull one down, but, you know. Go ahead. So, you know, the, the phrase that you said a long time ago, not a long time ago, a few years ago, a moment before thought, mm -hmm. one of those podcasts yeah. or ideas. Um, kind of made me think, right? So we're trying to examine our own experience with our own brain, which is kind of complicated. Mm -hmm. Trying to use the same instrument to investigate itself, so it could be a little tricky, but 
And neuroscience says that you've got like you do between forty to eighty or more thoughts per second mm-hmm. in your yeah. brain processing. And so it's, it seems to me that maybe when you whittle it down to maybe forty or twenty thoughts per second, that all of a sudden there's maybe maybe an energetic shift or some bandwidth gets opened up and maybe that's when these moments of enlightenment occur. I don't know. This is something that's true. Yeah, we need to we need to find the, the space between the thoughts for sure. Um and as my teacher some Sansanin would say, your mind cannot see your mind. <coughs> so you know what's necessary is to come to that place before thinking. And that is, there is that place. You know, neurologically, there's something going on, but there is a place before thinking. You know, so when we're thinking, we say, oh, I like that white wall, you know, or I think they need a new coat of paint, you know, but that, that white wall doesn't have any I like or I don't like. It's just a white wall. You know, we can look at the carpet and say, I like this carpet, it smells good. Or, I think this carpet is um, a little faded. But the carpet has no, you know, faded or um, fragrant. It's just a carpet. So when we come to that place, you know, as we're sitting, we're just um, breathing, just present. That's our mind before thinking. Just, you know, breathe in. Breathe out. There's, there's the, that end of the in-breath. There's the beginning of the out-breath. It's like juggling with one ball. You know, so as we do that, um, you know, the mind continues to add, you know, layers to that. Like, oh, you know, there's, um, maybe there's something going on with my breath. Or did I take that breath right? And, you know, eventually, as we continue bringing the heart and the mind back, right, we learn to stay with that. You know, that this more spaciousness opens up. That spaciousness is always there. It's like the big blue sky. You know, at any given time, even in Encinitas, sometimes clouds arise. And the clouds move through, but the sky is still vast. You know, sky is always blue. You know, at that, at that moment when we uh, see the clouds, you know, we momentarily forget that the sky is still blue. So just in that way, if we attach to these thoughts that are coming and going, you know, we're forgetting that great spaciousness. You know, when we look at the water and the ocean, you know, that the ocean is always uh, fathomless. You know, there's, there's a depth about that. You know, but at sometimes there's waves on the surface of the water, maybe lots of waves here. But, you know, those waves always have the nature of the ocean. And the thoughts also even have the nature of mind. 
you know that that great vastness of mind is is always present so in the midst of our day um, we it, when we're able to get out of our own way and respond spontaneously to the situation which we do you know that's the story of Mr. Lee someone calls and you say yes you know there's nothing extra about that That kind of natural intelligence, natural spaciousness, that's our true treasure. You know, all of the sitting that we do here is just a way to return to that. And so as we're sitting here, you know, because we have this real simple simple situation, you know, a few cushions of, you know, this time that we have set aside and then just breathe in breathe out because the the situation is so simple and repetitive it's many layers come off you know that have been obscuring that you know all of those kind of extra windows that have been open in the in the operating system of our mind right they have a chance to chill out all your tabs yeah, yeah. If you get all those windows open, you know the operating system is not going to work as well. That's the truth. So as we're sitting here, you know, then we return to that simplicity, the original clarity, the mirror-like nature of the mind. So we can call that, you know, this this place before thinking. We can call primary point, is what Asung San Sinim would call that or we can call that Buddha nature, or we could call that truth, or the universe in its purity. But it's before any of that, before any name. So we, we might say that name is don't know, don't know mind. That place before thinking is our substance. Then how do we use that? Moment to moment, keeping the mind like a mirror. If, if we see the light is red, then we stop. The light is green, then we go. If someone um, needs directions, we show them the way. So that is our uh, truth. Then how do we use that truth, right? That's the function. Moment to moment, um, we attain that substance, then perceive truth and find our correct relationship to our situation so that we meet the moment as a friend. Is that that's um, well, sort of full answer to your question? <laughs> but maybe you have another question. I think I have a question. Okay. Um, so I hear of people having glimpses of awakening. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm curious for someone who's fully awake, are they awake all the time? Mm-hmm. Or is it more of a thing that's nurtured or, or, you know, I mean, how does a person who's fully awake go about their daily stuff, you know, because you have to focus on, like, things, you have to focus on driving, you have mm-hmm. to focus, 
I guess I'm just trying to figure that out. I mean, what would a what would a fully enlightened person average day be like? I mean, <laughs> well, so I'm kind of pragmatic about this. I there were moments certainly in my practice when I have idealized, um, you know, the path, and so, so sometime I heard a great Dharma talk at San Francisco Zen Center, which is a kind of a Vatican for America Zen. Everything is done there the most beautiful way. And the teachers are very um, immensely strong in their practice. So one of those particular teachers I have an affinity for, uh, Paul Haller. You know, he had been a Theravadan monk. He's now a Zen teacher in this great place. So he read this poem by Wendell Berry about the peace of wild things and how the, you know, the tasks um, you know, rest asleep like cattle. And he t- t- you know, looked up and said, how often does that happen? That your tasks lie as- asleep like cattle. You know, maybe we better not wait for that. And so then he actually read a, a poem, maybe it was by Molly Peacock, about uh, chocolate cake and desire. And w- what about that, that we live in this world and we have the work of being present within our modern life, right, in a way that is able to enjoy the things of the world without attaching to them, you know, recognizing that they go away. You know, if they don't last, right, then what? So, maybe being able to, you know, enjoy the flowers. So they're in the um, Christian monastic tradition. You know, the, the hermits used to live in these cells in the desert, and the wisdom of the Desert Fathers was compiled by Thomas Merton, the great mystic, and other people. You know, so in one of these stories, um, you know, this uh, one maybe... Um, He says to the other, you know, isn't it wonderful to have nothing in your cell that gives you pleasure? A while ago, there was a little flower that came up in my cell, and I plucked it out so I wouldn't be distracted. And the other, he says, you know, that's all right, but if you can't deal without the flower, you should plant it again. You know, so being able to, right, in our Mahayana tradition, say that... um, All phenomena are empty, but every phenomena, just as it is, contains truth. In that way, uh, um, one of the teachers in my lineage um, wrote a calligraphy in which it said, you know, the whole world is a single flower. You know, that points back to the original uh, transmission that Buddha gave to his student Makasyapa. All of the disciples were gathered to hear a talk. Buddha simply held up one flower. At that time, Makasyapa smiled. And then he said, that's it, I transmit my teaching to you. The Dharma talk's over. So our dear friend Jolice actually kind of cottoned to that story. And and so sometime um, later, she brought me a flower 
She said, here, here's one flower. But what that is pointing to, you know, is that in utter simplicity, being able to embrace and, and, and um, to see in all of these phenomena, right, right there, right, that's, that's Buddha nature. You know, when we're driving, just driving. You know, when we're with someone, being really present to them. When, um, you know, we're, we're within traffic, you know, being able to find our, our centeredness within the traffic. In the middle of that activity, you know, wh- what's the center of our circle? You know, so the great teachers that I've known have been able to do that, you know, to respond spontaneously in the midst of our modern life with presence and compassion. I would say that's what enlightenment looks like. You know, there are experiences that are extraordinary, you know, and there's a place for them. But that's what I would say our enlightenment truly is. You know, so there's a traditional story about Sol. Sol had been practicing ever since she was a young girl. She had a really simple child mind, and her family practiced meditation. So she did this mantra, Kwan Semboso, right? The name of the Bodhisattva of Compassion. Everywhere that she went, she did Kwan Semboso, Kwan Semboso. And um, so one day when she was um, washing her clothes at the river, she heard the sound of the temple bell. You know, in that moment, you know, this, the washing of clothes, the sound of the bell, and her work, um, and her mind, all just completely became one. You know, so then her mind was crystal clear. Everything was just as it was. And she went home that day. And when she went home for dinner, she sat on a copy of the sutras. And that's considered very disrespectful, actually. And so her parents said, why are you sitting on the sutras? She said, because it's like, you know, I recognize these, uh, there's the, the kind of essential emptiness. So then they're like, oh no, you know, we need help with this one. So they brought over uh, this monk who was their teacher and he tested her and said, yeah, you know, she's very good. But then he said, you know, also, you know, the sutras just like this are truth. You know, so she was a little bit attached to the emptiness, you know, but at the same time, there's the particularity. Yeah, the sutras are empty, but then the sutras are also truth. So then she um, stopped sitting on the sutras, and she was known throughout her life as a realized person. She, she was really renowned, and there's only a story we have about her later in life, when she was a grandmother, and her granddaughter died. So at that time, everyone is checking her out. Here's our enlightened person. How are they going to respond? So at that time, she was crying for her granddaughter. And everyone's like, oh no, this is not good. She doesn't really understand that this is empty. She's attached. Maybe she's not so clear. 
And then at that moment, Sol stopped and she said to them, you don't understand, these tears are better than chanting, better than anything. When my granddaughter hears these tears, she'll enter nirvana. Do you understand? So what that means is, at that moment, right, meeting the moment as a friend, um, meeting it with our correct function, right? The relationship between granddaughter and grandmother is close. And so the correct function, the correct relationship at that time is to cry, right? That's the um, human nature, clear and undisguised. So at that time, that was her great teaching to the community. But what did she do in between? I mean, there's this huge, you know, decades in between those two stories. And so maybe at that time, she simply, you know, hung out the laundry and sat down with people and gave them her deep listening, you know, perceiving and responding. That's practicing in our situation.